We've put up some new decor in the studio. What do you think of the decor? I love the decor. I wish we could. Oh, uh, we should maybe tweet it. Maybe we'll tweet our wall on our on our tweeter. Well, I think we could get uh we could get recommendations. Like we're talking about this show next. What's your favorite panel from it? Yeah, oh, yeah, 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 yeah. That could be fun. That could be fun. We started putting up a panel for each episode that we um an anime for each. No, a manga panel for each shonen that we talk about is what I meant to say. And we've got a good mix here. We've got L saying justice will prevail. We've got an action shot of manga. And then what do we have for Attack on Titan? we got Aaron looking over the sink into the mirror saying, Tatakai. Tatakai. And just, you know, looking kind of like you pointed out, he kind of does look like Gabby. A little, a, a great observation, Chef. Welcome to Bravery Punch, the Shonen Show, where we have brains that are aged to perfection. I'm your host, Kunai Kenny. And I'm Doki Doki Duffy. And today we are talking about Promised Neverland. In part one of today's episode, we are going to do the classic Bravery Punch dive into the three pillars of Promised Neverland. And then in part two, we have some exciting new segments to show you. And Doki Doki Duffy is going to give us a deep, complex, intellectual dive into what the manga does differently than the anime in Promised Neverland. Would you agree, Duffy? That, that you'll be giving us a complex analysis like For that. For sure. I actually have a PhD in the Promised Neverland manga, as it is the first Shonen Jump manga I've read from start to finish. Before we get much further, we will be spoiling all of the manga and anime. So if you have not experienced the first arc of this show yet, go do so, watch that first season, and then come back, because we're going to get into it. Promised Neverland, or Yaksoku no Nebarando, is a manga originally written by Kaiyu Shirai and illustrated by Posca Demizu. It's our first on the show, I believe, where we have the writer and illustrator combo. It was published in Weekly Shonen Jump from 2016 to 2020, and if you're a super eyepatchable fan, you already know that this manga was the number two manga in Shonen Jump for a majority of its run in the magazine, just behind One Piece, which is a crazy feat in and of itself. Of course, a two-season anime adaptation, uh, animated by Cloverworks, also happened, which we're going to get to after the break. I like how we're going from slaying demons to running away from them. <laughs> True, yeah, that was a nice little fit there. <laughs> that's, a, that's just the kind of wide range you get in Shonen Jump. Truly. Now let's get into this first pillar. This time around, we have Emma... Does she have a last name? No. Emma number, or sequence of numbers. <laughs> Maybe that, that's her uh, last name. <laughs> but it's our first girl main character of a shonen we've talked about yet. I'm, Very exciting. I mean, I guess... Uh, oh, I'm dumb. Let's <laughs> cut that from yeah, the record. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> How did I forget about Monica? Yeah, we've got to write here. Oh, my God. Us. Okay. We have a girl main character for a shonen series, which doesn't happen often. We did already talk about Soul Eater in episode one. Feel free to check that out if you haven't already. But they are few and far between in the genre. This is a really exciting leap for what a shonen protagonist can be. We have Emma, as I said, and she is just this big-brained little kid, I guess, really kind of setting herself as this kind of beacon of hope as we love our shonen heroes being in a dark and bleak kind of world. She always kind of comes through for her friends and really is passionate and cares about them in the way that we love all of our shonen heroes to do so. She's definitely a great character, and I just want to talk about her being a girl just for a second, because not only is it noteworthy in this genre, but in preparing for this episode, I actually found an interview with the editor of the story. Now, editors in Shonen Jump don't directly write the stories, but they do have a large influence and are super helpful to making sure things happen on time or whatever. And the, the editor for this series went on to say that Emma needed to be a girl for this story specifically. That they tried variations where she was a boy, maybe even where, like Ray was the main character, and they just said it didn't work. And for inspiration as to why... They needed her as the main character. They said, quote, We often talked about Ghibli films. Most Ghibli films have similar character settings or combinations, where the main character is female 
and an active male character supports her, unquote. Which is pretty cool to hear about some inspirations of what made her who she is. Uh, as we talk about in episode one with Soul Eater and with Maka as the main characters, Maka is often like made the butt of a lot of weird sexual jokes, and we do not get that at all with Emma. She is at just all. a straightforward shonen hero who cares about her friends and has a achievable but outlandish dream to to conquer. Further, it's not even like, oh, I'm weaker because I'm a girl. That just doesn't even come up because they're kids. They're just all like pretty weak and going up against literal demons. And if you don't have some special breathing and sword skills, it's going to be really hard no matter what your gender is to be good at avoiding them. So as to who she is and what her dream is, what would you say Emma's dream is that drives the story forward? Talking about, I guess, season one specifically of Promised Neverland here is all that I have seen personally is, um, and I have seen a bit of season two. We'll talk about that later. In season one here, it's a pretty straightforward dream. And again, spoilers if you've not seen the show. If you don't know anything about the show, go watch episode one right now um, without knowing anything. I think it'll be a great experience that way. But season one, her dream is to get her and her family, her brothers and sisters, out of this demon farm um, safely because they live in a world where they live in an orphanage where they have believed for a long time that their brothers and sisters in the past have just been taken to other families, but it turns out they are being harvested by demons to eat their brains because uh, smart kids got tasty brains. And I love to talk about the societal implications of all the shonen heroes and their dreams, and the full implications of hers don't get really explored until later in the story. But basically what Austin said is that they're expected to just be eaten. Like, no, like, I guess there's, like, one maybe exception. These kids are just expected to be eaten. And so by saying, no, I'm going to escape and break out of this prison, it's counter to what is expected of them in the society in which they exist. And this goes further beyond, as we love in Shonen, where the dream actually expands as you go further into the story. Now, I don't know, I don't think this even happened in season two of the anime, but... If you remember back when we talked about Attack on Titan, we wanted to see a shonen dream that got more hopeful and expanded, right? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And yeah. that kind of does happen in this series. Yeah. Because what you said is right. Emma starts with just wanting to save her family. But as we learn and we explore this world, there's actually a ton of families and a ton of farms. And Emma's dream expands to saving all humans, not just her and her direct family. And this dream is so counter to uh, Aaron's uh, kind of thinking about, I don't know, he's just staring at me right now on the on our new wall of people. But I was just kind of thinking about how, like, Aaron's dream is to eradicate Titans to save humanities. But uh, I don't know, Emma's it isn't quite the same. Her, her, her The way of, that she wants to achieve that dream of saving all humans is more freeing all humans and just getting them out of this demon world rather than eradicating all demons to free all humans. You're more right than you know, as we'll see in uh, the second half of the episode. Demon genocide is a topic they explore. <laughs> One other thing I want to get on about with the hero and the dream is, I don't know if we've talked about it much on the show yet, but the idea of this inherited destiny that kind of goes along with the dream. And stay with me for a moment here. Uh gotta go to one piece sorry people but for what no wait hold on hold on <laughs> you don't know what i get to i want to give an example um i don't know if we've talked about it much on the show but stay with me here because i want to outline a little bit of what inherited destiny means in shonen and why this story actually goes counter to it in some cool ways so often or always rather characters always have their dream right we've made that super clear but along with that there's some like things that they couldn't even control that's been set up for them by their, like, parents or their ancestors that they're just, like, thrust upon as they come into the world. Eren didn't ask to become the Attack Titan. Literally got forcefully injected with that. Like, Luffy didn't ask to become the Will of the Deep child. That just happened to him. And so often these go hand-in-hand hand with their dreams. And I think in this story, it's strongly implied that Emma is actually set up to become a mama or a mother or whatever you want to call them. A woman who takes care of the children, and raises them to be killed. Did you realize that while watching the anime? I guess I never really considered that. That's the first time that I have even considered that point. But no, that that 
that would make sense because we did learn that how the mamas are created is through raising the best children. And yeah, wow. Whoa, really rocking my world right <laughs> so, now. So literally the, the mother's job is one, to have children. Like Isabel uh, has Ray. If you forgot that detail, Isabel is Ray's mom, which is crazy. Uh, but then also it's to raise the kids. And throughout the manga, it becomes increasingly clear that Emma was smart enough and caring enough, but Isabel saw, or Isabella, sorry, saw something in her that's like sinister or, or cruel or uncaring enough that she could become that. And Emma just completely... 180s completely goes against in the face of that and says no 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 i'm gonna save every kid which is just so cool i love the way emma treats all of her friends too you know every you know every shonen hero always treats their friends with the utmost respect but emma just she lives with a group of little tiny kids and she treats all of them with kind of the same level of knowledge. She slowly reveals to all of them kind of the truth, the harsh, harsh truth of the world that they live in. And these are like three and four-year-old kids that she's saying, hey, you're being raised to be eaten one day. But she treats them as her equals and she treats them with such, like with just the utmost respect in such a beautiful way that um, I think is just so powerful because we think of children to be so dumb and naive, but Emma here is like, no, these kids are some of my smartest friends and they will understand this and they will know how to react to this. And I think that's so beautiful. It's the classic shown in genre of really believing in your crewmates and your comrades and just knowing they'll get the job done and taken in a really cool way, like you said. Technically, I think she doesn't tell the youngest at first, but she does believe in them still to like take care of themselves as like three-year-olds when everyone else has run away. So that's still putting faith in them. Yeah, it, it, I think that's just really powerful. And with that, do you think we should move into our, our crew here? Unless there's anything else you want to mention about um, Emma, our hero? No, what are your impressions from the really wide cast of characters we have in Promise Neverland as an anime viewer? Well, I think I really just want to start by focusing on uh, the, the main crew here. We have Emma, of course, but then uh, this main trio consists of Emma... Norman and Ray, our our three, our um, our are, are shonen crew here in the Promised Neverland, and um, we haven't mentioned this yet, but the art in the show I think is just really fantastic and gives a lot of kind of unique design to at least the crew. I honestly I was gonna say for a lot of the characters, but there's some of the younger kids I can't really identify. Oh, but if we're talking art, I think in the manga especially as well, uh, Demi Zhu's art is really, really solid, and mm -hmm. her facial expressions on these characters convey so much at times. I absolutely agree. Yeah, but I just, I love the look of all the, the main characters. And we actually saw a really great meme today that compared them to some of the Haikyuu <laughs> um, uh, characters, which I loved. But um, yeah, I think they look so cool, and I love how this crew kind of works with the power system, which we'll talk with more is the way they all talk to each other and discuss with each other where they all, they, they do trust each other like in, in all, mm, sorry, I'm getting a little lost here, but what I'm trying to say is they have a lot of trust in each other as all of our shonen crews do, but I, there's something about this world that is just so much darker and bleaker where any slip-up can cost these kids their lives in – where in other shows, the stakes just aren't this high all the time. Where if one of them just says the wrong thing to one of the people watching them, their whole plan is is just foiled. So there's a lot of trust and respect in the crew that I was kind of talking about earlier that Emma puts with them that, that I love to see. What I really like about Ray and Norman is that they're both geniuses, but they lack sort of the hopefulness and compassion that Emma does. And that's what makes her her main character and not them. Like early on in season one, or not early on, early on in the story, you see Ray willing to like kill himself for the others to escape, right? It's this incredible moment when he's like, I'm going to burn myself. Mama can't have me. And you're like, whoa, he's doing the edgy Itachi thing. Emma just like slaps the lighter out of his hand. and is like, you idiot. We can still save you and get everyone else out. Here's how we're going to do it. And she has the genius that he does, but is also so hopeful. And I really 
love that part of Ray's story throughout, or part of Ray's uh, journey throughout the story is gaining more of that hopefulness through Emma. And he does sort of, you think he's going to be like a Sasuke at first, and he's just not. He really is really open to her um, and learns how to be more hopeful. Yeah, we have kind of, Norman is the calculated machine thinker almost who lays out these whole plans and everyone trusts Norman and think his plans are always rock solid airtight like if Norman's plan messes up then we're done and there there's this moment at the end of season one where it seems like Norman's plan is foiled but Emma again is just kind of like no I got this like we can save you and but I mean I guess Norman unfortunately doesn't get saved but I don't know something happens I guess we'll get into it later but. yeah I don't want to I don't want to talk too <laughs> far ahead of what we're gonna get to. yeah yeah but Norman's characterization is a weird one especially as a manga reader if you just see season one Norman yeah I think you're exactly right he's just this like genius kid who isn't as quite as edgy as Ray he has a really he's explicitly romantically interested in Emma um, which I don't think he tells her whatever. Yeah. Um, and his characterization really happens much later in the story when it becomes a central conflict. Him versus Emma happens, and we'll get into that. But he's not <laughs> really my favorite. My favorites are definitely Emma and Ray. If I'm just thinking about the manga story. Yeah. No, I I, I really love Ray. He does come off in the beginning of the story as this edgy, dark character, and he also has that crazy like photographic memory thing. Yeah, where... these kids are really smart. Yeah, these kids, like, smarter than we'll ever be. I this mean. kid, Ray, says <laughs> towards the end of season one, he's like, I read and studied, but I hated every moment of it. But <laughs> I did it all for you. Like, I wish I could have done this I know. Again. Crazy. Crazy. But yeah, Ray, so he starts off as kind of a plant. He, we think he's mm-hmm. evil at first for, for a, not at you know, for a hot second at least, he comes off as saying, oh, yes, I have known about the farm the whole time, and I've been giving information to Mama. But then they kind of use that to their advantage because Ray tells them he's on their side. But, like we said, he has this really dark edge to him, but as he spends more time with Emma, or not even more time with Emma, but as, like, Emma kind of can slap him in the face more, he... Just becomes more caring and compassionate, and he loses that edge, and he really becomes such a softer, softer boy. <laughs> yeah, you see him smile a lot, and it just warms my little heart. It's just so cute. It's just so cute. And I love seeing these crew members contrast with the protagonist show so much. We talked about that in Demon Slayer a little bit, but it was done so much more harshly where at times it was jarring. But here I think it's done really well where all of them have their own plans and they all think they're so big brained, Mm. but it's our hero that always comes through in the end with the hope and a plan that is in everyone's best interest. Absolutely. And it, that everyone you're talking about is a lot of characters yeah. that I do want to touch on. This show has a, and manga, has a wide cast of characters. Uh, they all have names and they all have distinct looks, which I like. And we actually have a lot of different like ethnicities represented. There are black kids on the orphanage, um, which is cool. Although it is a little strange that the black girl's name is Jemima, but <laughs> whatever. <laughs> they all have They all have really distinct looks. And even if you don't remember, like... Oh, uh, that like the blonde girl. I don't remember her name, but she's so distinct. And even just in her little visual presentations when she's on screen, you're like, oh, she's the one who cut her hair to help Ray escape. And now her hair is short. Like it, it just uses the visual language of the characters really well to make you know that they matter, even if you don't like you. If you even if you don't remember them all, you know Emma cares about them, and you can see why whenever they're on the screen. Yeah. No. It. it, it yeah. Uh, I, agree. I agree. I before we move on, I wrote down that they individually, all these kids get a little lost when you think about them all individually. There's a lot of little runts. Like I remember Phil, but then there's uh, <laughs> there's a bunch of little kiddos. Phil. But their support for each other uh, shines throughout the whole story. Like especially at the end of season one, when they're all helping each other get across the forest. You don't need to know their names to be like, oh, this is awesome. I'm so happy for them. And whenever they're playing tag, oh my too, gosh. it's just so amazing. Tactical tag and hide-and-go-seek is just, like, so cool in, in season one. When they are, like, 
planning and training to escape through tag. It just the show uses these. I guess I guess with this should we just uh, I'm I'm starting to talk about it already but the power system our third pillar the power system go yeah. ahead it, it's it's funky here we don't have a traditional like quote unquote power like a devil fruit we don't have a quirk we don't have ninjutsu we don't have kamehameha waves we just have big brained kiddos here and how they train is by playing tag and hide and go seek <laughs> and through just learning like medical field tactic things and it's just it's it's so so cool and so fun yeah there the power system really is about learning i think like you just said it's all about knowledge that they gain through their efforts whether it's tactical advantages through playing tag and knowing how to use little kids to escape to learning about the world because especially as the manga goes on there's a lot of stuff these kids need to know if they're ever going to make it out alive. Like, when I say make I don't even mean make it out of the orphanage, if they're making it out of the demon world alive. And so their power-ups come in the form of knowledge. And one super clear example that you didn't even realize from the anime alone, which is so sad, is the demons have a weak point. One of the first things the kids learn is that the demons regenerate and cannot be beaten unless you hit them in the eye. And they don't just learn that. That's not just, like, given to them. They have to, like, really struggle and figure that out. And by doing that, they then power up. And it's like, oh, okay, I have this new tool to use. And we see that over and over and over again. Their hard work pays off through learning things that make them more capable. And as we're doing this show, I'm starting to realize so much more that Shonen kind of use knowledge in general mm. to to give us progression like in promise neverland in attack on titan for example as well these characters start off quite literally like walled in and naive about the outside world and as they start to learn about the outside world they learn more powers more um fears more monsters just more things and through that they have to get stronger and i don't know i just i, I think it's so interesting that we see in Hunter Hunter as well too, like Gone in Killua, they don't know anything about Nen um, until one day someone's like, "Hey, there's this whole power system that you can use to to get stronger that has been like right under your noses the whole time." And do yeah, you, do you know. think do you think the fact that most of our shonen heroes are young children or young adults plays into that? Yeah, it it gives the reader a way to learn that doesn't feel so forced. Sometimes, again, like we talked about, info dumps can be pretty heavy, whereas when we are experiencing those info dumps as a, through the lens of a child, I guess, it's not as jarring or it doesn't feel as forced because, you know, sometimes things have to be explained in black and white to kids just so they can get an understanding. And I think it's a great, a great kind of storytelling tactic. And so where other stories kind of have the, let's say, tearing down the walls of whatever it's hiding the secrets. Like, we talked about secrets before, and this is this goes beyond that. It's not just that the world has secrets here. They are, I don't know what I'm saying. Yeah. <laughs> I, just, I felt like I wanted to add on, but I don't have anything to say. Uh, I'll just say. Promise Neverland really takes that idea and leans into it fully. Where secrets and uncovering things about the world are fun tidbits and other stories especially like what we've talked about in attack on titan it's the main driving progression system for this story unless you consider them getting guns and upgrade and i think what's so exciting in this is the power there's not like power-ups per se um so much like no one ever goes like super saiyan or no one ever like gets super you know nine tail foxy or anything like that but I guess what are the equivalent of those moments are those kind of breakthroughs that we talk about with Emma when it's just like it's we didn't even know this whole plan Emma had going the whole time. It's these kind of the puzzle pieces all falling together are those like super power at moments. We're like, oh, shit, Emma, that's sick. Like you had that going the whole time. Like, I love that. Like that, that that's just, our Super Saiyan moment. It's just as impactful as seeing 
Goku land the Mega Blaster. I don't know. I'm not a huge DBZ fan, but it's just as impactful as seeing the hero take down a villain. Absolutely. And what I think is so noteworthy about that is we often associate those power-ups, those very visual and physical, often, power-ups with Shonen. But let me, let me remind you, dear listener, that this was the second most popular story for a majority of its run. Readers of Shonen Jump didn't just come to the magazine or the anime even, just for those flashy power-ups, what Austin just said was enough to capture the hearts and minds of so many. Yeah, and I think we have so much excitement for the show, as you can hear in our voices, but I've only seen season one and a little bit into season two. I saw a, a, a couple episodes in before I dropped off, and we're about to take a break here and talk about uh, the differences after that, but it's so unfortunate that... This show has such an exciting first season, and it has all these exciting pieces that we've already talked about. But it, as we will get into after the break, it, it, it slowly kind of um, doesn't know what to do with all of those really, really awesome pieces, with all those amazing pillars. So I think here we've talked about our pillars, we've set them up, and we're so excited about Promise Neverland. But let's take a break and... Um, get into uh, some other stuff. You have oh, something written here. I do. You have something written here said, billion dollar business idea. Remind me if I forget. Okay. I'm very interested. Okay, okay. Yes, yes. Thank you for reminding me. Billion dollar business idea. We can make Promise Neverland themed escape rooms. Oh, tell me about it. So, <laughs> you <laughs> are, are, you know, placed in, um, in it's, it's like a weekend getaway type thing. Ooh. It's more of a resort getaway where you and um, a group of your friends are sent to um, an orphanage where you have um, a person who takes care of you all and uh, you somehow have to uh, escape before, uh, you know, the allotted time runs out or <laughs> something. I don't <laughs> there, know. There but be... it's all Promise Neverland themed and... You would have maybe, I don't know, some AI like Emma and Norman and Ray characters that you can play with as well. Would there be an element where we have to take tests and the better you score, the longer you have to solve it? Like, yeah. like if I go with my friends and you score really badly, are you just gonna are you just get killed on the second day and we don't have to we don't have you anymore? Yeah, you you slowly lose your friends. It's kind of, <laughs> it's kind of like, oh, okay, wait. Not no, it's not escape room. It's a game show. Oh. <laughs> it's the Promise Neverland game show where um we you just get a bunch of weebs who think that they can do it and um you just kind of watch it from there. Be sure to like, follow, and subscribe to Bravery Punch on whatever podcasting platform you're listening to us on, and follow us on Twitter at Bravery Punch. In the link in our bio, you can find our email address, and you can send in... Aw, goo. (laughs) Oh, he messed up that recording. Or we can leave that cute little meow right there. But you can find our email address and send us some... um, (laughs) <laughs> Goo! We're trying to make some content in here. And follow us on Twitter at Bravery Punch, where you can find our email address to send us your thoughts like this listener here. We've got Rob dropping his thoughts on the last Demon Slayer episode. On the power system, Rob writes, I personally really like it in the show. It reminds me of the Clone Wars more than The Last Airbender. The former has a set amount of lightsaber forms and force moves, and you watch the characters grow into that. Where the last airbender, there are forms, but as characters get stronger, they come up with crazier and crazier moves. The connection with Star Wars that makes sense, because George Lucas was inspired by old samurai movies and history for the idea of the Jedi. It makes it feel authentic. Like in real sword fighting, all you actually do is learn the forms. In Eastern cultures, I feel like there's a large emphasis on breathing as a way to help your internal balance. And he goes on to write that... um. The demons actually have a cheat code, essentially, because they just get the daddy Kibutsuji blood to power up, and the demon slayers, all they have is their forms that they can just hone and hone and practice and practice and master, and use those to fight the demons as best they can. Rob, it's a king take. Thank you for writing into the show. Love that. Love being presented new ways to think about power systems with Shonen. So please send us your thoughts, and be sure to tune in every other Friday to Bravery Punch. And if you like the show, please leave a review. Stay brave.
All right, we are back from a short break, ready to talk about some more Promise Neverland. But before we get into the differences between the anime and the manga, I once again, we once again, have a new segment to bring you here on Bravery Punch, the second of many new and fresh segments here. And today, I am proud to bring you the new and exciting... Shonen Run! Shonen Run? I thought we were talking about Shonen Jump. And the subtext, who can escape mama? And then we get the, the crowd kind of shouts that with us, you know, in the studio, the in-studio crowd. That mm, we're the in-studio audience, very COVID safe, yeah. by the way. <laughs> All right, but here in Shonen Run, what we are going to be talking about is a team that can escape from a promised Neverland farm, but with a fun twist on it. And Doki Doki Duffy, what is that twist? So we are taking some characters and throwing them into another shonen story where the twist is they can't use their powers? They can't kill? What is the twist? I don't remember. So I guess how we're looking at this is I've chosen two shonen characters for Doki Doki Duffy, and he has chosen two shonen characters for me. And we are going to kind of think of, all right, these kids as their personalities, how would it function kind of like the trio of Emma, Norman, and Ray? How well would we fare? Would we be able to escape? What are the pros and cons of this scenario? So for Doki Doki Duffy... Wait, wait, wait. Oh. And some ground rules, obviously... Oh. For some ground rules, we're not going to let them kill anyone, but if we have some superpowers, then we might want to let them use it. We're going to be using our extensive shonen knowledge to try to get ourselves not eaten and shipped off to these scary demons. One other thing is we tried to pick two characters for each other we thought were kind of balanced, one sort of erratic character and one kind of, and one kind of aware character, I guess, a smarter character, if you will. So um, for Doki Doki Duffy, I have selected Mob from Mob Psycho 100. Yes, that is a shonen, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah, right, yeah, okay, I'm con- confirmed. And Aaron Yeager from Attack on Titan. <laughs> okay, you want me to start or you want me to give you yours? I think we'll, let's give each other both and uh, we'll... All right, coming up for Kunai Kenny. In his first corner, he has the legendary lightning blade incel, Zenitsu. Mm -hmm. But to help him actually get somewhere and not run away screaming all the time, it's it's Karasuno's famous setter, Kageyama. All right, all right, okay. Zenitsu's definitely going to be tough, but I think with Kageyama we can make something work. I will allow you to have full sleepwalking Zenitsu. She's shown in the movie and the series a lot of capability while sleeping. You can use that to your advantage. All right, so with Zenitsu, the key is, I think, yeah, just... we would have to drug him a lot, I feel like. I don't know if... How are you get drugs? I don't know. We, we'd somehow go into the nursery where there is... I I don't know, but he just, he's got to be asleep. One, the second he finds out that he's going to be eaten, he's going to be screaming about it all the time and blow our cover. So I got to somehow, mm-hmm. first and foremost, find a way to to get him. Okay, wait, here's here's what I got to do. I got to mm. get him more scared of Kageyama. Mm. Kageyama's got to do his, like, scary thing that he does to Hinata in uh, Haikyuu and just intimidate Zenitsu into not ratting on, or not screaming on them i guess yeah Maybe... i think kageyama is very a monarch monarchical very uh emperor like so i guess that's phase one of what i need to get done but what are what are you thinking about with your team right now so my first thing is aaron yeager instead of wanting to kill all the titans he's gonna be yelling about killing all the demons and at this point we don't have any way to fight them we don't have any weapons and only i know the demon weak spot but let's even if i don't know that if especially if I don't know that, rather, we're gonna it's gonna be tough to fight them. So my job is gonna be to corral him and be like, no, 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 chill, chill, chill. We'll get out. We'll kill them later, but not yet. And he's just gonna be like training to fight, and so that's just gonna be a whole thing. I'll let him do that because obviously a fast and strong twelve-year-old Aaron will be useful. The next thing I gotta get done is Mob has to believe in himself. He's obviously a mega powerful Esper who could just probably like, teleport us out or some craziness, 
if I can just get him to not be so sad about being eaten, he'd probably be like, oh, but I'm, I'm, I'm not that smart, so I'm probably going to die soon. Oh, well. And he's not going to, like, want to help us. And so I'm going to have to simultaneously corral one overzealous little kid and try to hype up another. I feel like with Mob, though, I know we talked about maybe not having the powers, but he's one character who I might let the powers slide because at that age, like, the young child Mob at that age would have kind of, like, some subdued psychic powers of, like, you know, spoon bendies and stuff like that. that well, might, he's, you know... he's super powerful, but right. he just doesn't want to use them slash he's, like, embarrassed about it. So right. I'd have to get him to get us away somehow. You'd have to take on the role of his mentor. Um, right. What's his name? I don't remember. <laughs> <laughs> You'd have to be that enthusiastic. Reagan or something. Yeah. You'd have to be that enthusiastic role. Well, something I'm just considering right now that I'm going to have to figure out is Kageyama is going to get eaten fast because he is dumb as we have seen he <laughs> fails in school this is true so he is gonna be one of the first kids to go because how they decide to eat them is the smarter oh, no, they no, no. are i got you i got you so he you're gonna have to teach him math and stuff yeah but just tell him how it's all about volleyball so like mm. trigonometry and geometry just be like no, no no this is all volleyball terms make every problem about volleyball suddenly he's a genius and you'll have tons of time with it. This is also considering, too, that I'm also going to be doing good at math. And in a world where I'm as smart as Emma, if, if we're considering me at that sure. level, then I might be able to do it. But, you know, right now we would both be like, I don't, I don't know. <laughs> I don't know how we're going to do this. Because how they decide is the kids who are smarter get to stay longer because they want those aged, smart brains. But then kind of the dumber they are, they'll get those brains out there quicker. So... Even Zenitsu, too. They're both, I'm like, both my teammates. Yeah. Uh, but I think Kageyama, we got the athletic, I got to think about the athletic prowess I got here with he can, both uh, of them, He too. can we toss, the like, supplies to you. He can maybe chuck you onto the wall. Yeah. And pretend you're a volleyball and just throw you up there. Yeah. We can really start getting some kid tosses mm -hmm. going. The little ones then... are just volleyball shaped. Just chuck them. Yeah. And then we really got to... You get Zenitsu doing like the sleepy piggyback rides mm -hmm. for for people, uh, the lightning piggyback rides. Um, yeah, if he can just lightning blade zigzag his way up there, he's good. He's good, but it's really like we got to get our 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 shiz together like quick because <laughs> we're all getting eaten soon at this rate. <laughs> I'm thinking about it. I'm probably gonna get eaten last out of my crew because Mob's not actually that smart. He's pretty average. I feel like. And so I'm going to have to be simultaneously teaching them math and stuff while also hyping one up and trying to chill the other one out. So I'm really going to be more like a teacher, which is uh, not the escapist fantasy I want right now. <laughs> what it sounds like is both of us don't have the big brains of Emma, Norman, and Ray to uh, really conquer this task. I think uh, in, in this situation of Shonen Run, Mama, mama might got my mama might have us. Mama might make money milking. Fuck. <laughs> <laughs> uh, yeah. So that is another bravery punch segment here. Shonen Run. Who can escape Mama? And today it wasn't us. Tune in next time when we don't try this again. <laughs> hey, but maybe I don't know. Maybe we'll tweak it and we'll bring it back. Who knows? So many, so many fun bits here. But with that, let's talk about some more uh, Promise Neverland. So as I said earlier in the show, I have only seen season one and some bits of season two. But season two had this issue of just deciding to wrap up the entire series by the end of it. So the pacing just got way out of whack and way too fast where I just remember starting an episode and thinking like, did I like skip something did i miss something and i don't know I, it just kind of fell off to me and um after what duffy was telling me about kind of what i missed and what i wasn't getting i just thought you know what i'm kind of just gonna leave it at season one so if you have only seen season one or if you've not seen promise neverland i would definitely recommend checking out season one and finishing that and just leaving it as is you can watch season one leave it there, and just make it up from the end. And spoilers ahead, the kids make it out, and so you can just leave it there. They make it out, and, you know, they make it somewhere happy and safe, and that's the end of Promise Neverland for me. But if you want to take the red pill and see what's just over that wall, you can keep listening to this very special and unnamed segment 
where Doki Doki Duffy tries to recount everything that happens in the manga, and Kunai Kenny here is going to react as he doesn't know what's about to happen. Doki Doki Duffy's dialectic dive into Promise Neverland. <laughs> <laughs> so, first things first, you do know Musica and Sonju, right? They're the two demons they meet right away. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So okay. once they get out of the wall, they're their two friends. And so they don't eat humans, mm-hmm. and that's special. Do you know why? Yeah, because demons need to, like, eat humans to survive. Good. All right. We're with us so far. So demons, yeah, they are, like, this weird primal beast thing, and if they don't eat people, they kind of regress, and they need people to, I don't know, maintain their forms. Cool. You're with us so far. Okay. Do they make it to the first sort of bunker shelter after hanging out with Musica and Sonju. Yeah, 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 yeah. They're no. I think they I want to say they're there before they meet them. I don't know the exact timeline, but do they they make it to a bunker? They make it to a bunker. And there's a sad there's lonely frenzy. man in there. No, there's no sad lonely man. There's a dead body with some blood on the wall. Yeah, this is crazy. There is a the like emotional core of the series or emotional core of the middle chunk of the series is these two characters named Hugo and Lucas. Where you go... Oh, Lucas from um, Earthbound. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Lucas from Mother 3 comes in and starts using PK Fire. No, mm. there's this guy. And he's they find him in the shelter just living there. He's like a middle-aged dude. He's got a really cool design, actually. He kind of has like, this clown eyes, and he's got this like loose pompadour. He's a cool-looking dude. But they get in there, and he's like, fuck off, kids. I don't want you here. This is my home. And immediately, you're just like, whoa, whoa, whoa. What's going on? Because... As the story progresses, you learn he did exactly what they did. He escaped, but everybody he knew died. Everybody else died, and it's just him. And so he's just like, look, I'm just trying to survive. You got to get out of here. And they they bicker and they bicker, and eventually Emma uses her persuasive power to convince him and Ray to go on some journey. And they set out on a quest. But the whole time he's planning on killing them. He's planning on killing these two children. Wait, wait. A grown man is yep. planning on killing two children. Just to, like get rid of them. Nice. Okay. He, I think he even wants to like give them to the demons specifically. Like he doesn't want to murder them because he's like, oh, that's actually a little fucked. I think he wants to just like leave them to the demons. Yeah, as one wants to do. But Emma gets kidnapped. And this is where the story just gets crazy. So somewhere in the writer's room or something, they were like, we need more action. Because Emma gets kidnapped. And the next many chapters are this, like, arena deathmatch called Goldie Pond, where she's in this amusement park that's, like, an aristocratic hunting ground for children. You know the thing where, like, the most dangerous... The Hunger Games? Yeah, like, the most dangerous game is man. Well, the least dangerous game is children, but they also have guns now. (laughs) I thought we were just running away from Mama. No, no, no. So there's, like, a whole other group of kids in this amusement park that's empty, And they all have guns, and they're all just trying to survive because there's, like, this bourgeoisie demon crew that has this illegal hunting ground. And when this music plays, they all show up and start fighting, and so there's, like, tons of kids die. You just see, like, them get, like, eaten. Like, it's crazy. And so what they have to do is they have to, like, plan to kill these demons. And so, like, there's, there's like, a training arc, and there's this payoff where there's all these demon fights. Like, it gets into, into like, a battle manga. Where they fight demons and, like, actually kill them. And there's all these different characters with different fights. Feels very, very typical shonen. And they kill a bunch of demons. Oh, my. I don't even. I'm just, like, taken aback. Are, are you yeah. talking about a different show right now? No, this is a promise never Okay. And so, within all of this, there's Lucas, who's another adult. Same uh-huh. age as Hugo. And you learn that they're actually from the same crew. They got separated. Didn't realize they were alive. So after, you know, killing a bunch of demons... They free even more kiddos there and bring them all back to the bunker. We have this very touching reunion. It's very emotional. And then the family gets bigger, which is actually cool. It touches on the expansion of the dream. Suddenly, Emma has more kids to save, more even adults, because the family literally grows, which is cool. And I do kind of like that accepting of, like, non-blood family, too. I think that's a really cool shonen element uh, in this show. But it keeps going. Oh, God. (laughs) So then they learn. So there's the whole uh, William Minerva. Who's that guy to you? He leaves the secrets in the books mm-hmm. for the kids to get out. Yeah. He's the secret. He's like the puzzle man. Kind yeah. Of. So he's actually part of this like family called the Rotri family or the Latri. It's like R-A-T-R-I. 
I don't know. I don't know if it was ever officially translated when I was reading it. Mm-hmm. Uh, and they're a clan of people who are in league with the demons and actually want the farms to be like happening because mm. it was part of this like contract with the mm. demons and if the farms don't work then they get eaten and so there's these like humans who start hunting the kids like there's there's human people who are trying to hunt the kids and it gets into like very like end of evangelion you know when the when the army gun people yeah come in like that happens mm-hmm. but in the bunker right no that i do remember seeing wait what that happens yeah so in season two eventually okay. so the kids like get to the bunker they hang out for a bunker for a little bit and then the humans come and attack them okay good so they i think they just like skip the whole arc and <laughs> they just like go to the humans attacking the kids the emotional weight of that part is that Hugo and lucas sacrifice themselves so the kids can get away like, it's really, like, you really like Hugo at this point. He's, like, the dad. He's, like, the reluctant dad who's come around, and he sacrifices himself so they can get away. No, they just, like, watch a <laughs> videotape that, like, William Minerva left for oh them, and then they leave. Okay, that's crazy. So, from here, my recollection gets pretty hazy, because I've actually alluded to this in previous episodes, but the show liberally uses time skips. There's So, after the two adults die... There's, like, another travel sequence, and they get to, like, another bunker or safe spot. And from here, they need to spend time researching. And they're looking for all this, like, demon lore. And there's, like, like a year goes by in the bunker originally. Months go by in this search. There's a lot of, like, Emma and Ray go together and leave all the kids behind. Anyway, there's, like, two time skips at least. And we, we learn more about the demon history. And so do you know there's, like, two different worlds? There's literally a human world and a demon world. Okay, and they got I think pulled, I kind of knew that. They got pulled yeah. into the demon world. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, so there's this thing called the Promise where... The Promise Neverland? Yeah, there's a little demon god. There's, like, this little dude, and his name... Akira? No. <laughs> uh, I don't know. There's this, like, demon god, and his name is impronounceable. It's, like, never written in real words. And Dio. Sure, we call him Dio. So Dio, the demon, the demon, um, oh. tells them about like this this history that the demons and humans separated, but they wanted to keep some humans on their farms to like eat. And I guess the humans were okay with that as long as most of the humans got to be not in the demon world. And then. We learn Norman is still alive. Did that happen in the anime? So that is where I left off is all of a sudden, like, Norman was back, and I was like, wait a minute. This just all happened too fast. So Norman was, and this is, I think this could have worked. I really do. Where he was taken to this Lambda experimental facility and basically got experimented on and just got, like, jacked. And it's really, really weird because the manga deliberately makes you think he's, like, an adult now. So, like, a year and a half to two years maybe has passed for the other kids. And every time Norman's on the page, he looks like a legit adult. And you just don't know if it's, like, weird body experimentation that happened to him or what's going on. And he has all these, like, genetic mutated people with him and his crew. And he's got this, like, king thing going on where he, like, rules these mutants essentially there's one dude who looks like faust from guilty gear he's got a freaking bag on his head anyway would you believe me if i told you that a major part major conflict the last third of the story is that norman wants to do genocide and emma doesn't (laughs) at this point you could tell me that that Phil is the main villain of the story, and I guess I would believe you. I'd be really into that. Unfortunately, that doesn't happen. <laughs> but yeah, Norman has this whole people, this whole like gang. But it's like a, it's like a, you know, Jet from Avatar: Last Airbender, the like Lost Gang or whatever. It's like that. He's got this whole base of like mutants, and he his plan is like we have to kill all the demons. Very Aaron Yeager, very topical for right now. He says we gotta kill the demons. It's the only way. And you just don't know what's going to happen. And unfortunately, I don't even remember what really happened. Emma was just like, hey, what if we didn't? And eventually he just agrees to not. It's like this weird Emma is really compassionate and empathetic. And we love that in characters. But it just they have this like conversation. And all of a sudden he's just like, yeah, okay, sure. 
But while that's all happening, there's a little... keep going. Oh, my God. There's little political drama. So I don't know how much we want to get into this, but there's a literally a demon aristocracy set up. Like, Lewis, the main demon running his illegal hunting ground, yeah, he's back because he's a prince, and there's a demon queen, and there's these demon, like, ruler aristocrats, and they're fighting, and Norman wants to kill them, and the queen dies, and then she, like, powers up, and they fight, and there's a lot of demon fighting, and... Emma's not even involved, and they, they fight and die, and then, and then she's So dead. I think what we're getting at is the issue with Promise Neverland is here is that it has this great idea, but it gets lost in the shonen idea of... Uh, sorry, I said idea twice there. Promise Neverland has this great setup, but it gets lost in the idea that shonens get... They just kind of always keep going. There's always more arcs. There's always something that happens next. There's always a, more to the adventure. But in Promised Neverland, they escaped, and it could have been a concise story. It could have kind of gone somewhere, but I guess that's not what a shonen is exactly. So it kind of kept going, and then it got in the spotlight, and then it just kept going, and it didn't know what it was doing, and you it wanna kept know, going. You want to know the worst part of it all is the ending doesn't really make this all worth it. Emma basically redoes the promise, right? We we talked in the first half that her dream expands to saving all humans. Once she learns that there are more humans and more farms, she wants to save them all, which is cool. Very into that. But how she has to do that is by giving up all memory of her family. It's really, really sad. She's able to, like, chat with Demon God, Dio, and she says, you can take all my memories, and then everyone gets to be safe. And so it's just like the last chapter just cuts forward in time. Everyone's back in like real world America, I think. And they find Emma and she doesn't know who anyone is. And that's it. It's really sad. And she's just like, I'll hang out with you guys, but I don't know who you are. And that's where we leave them. I feel like that's so sad because so much of her dream is carried by her love and compassion for her family. And to just Mm -hmm. lose that at the end and to achieve the dream almost makes it feel like we didn't quite achieve it truly it really was heartbreaking and really soured the whole second half or more of the story for me and i i think it it is worth watching that first season and i'm kind of maybe interested in i don't know seeing some of that some of those follow-up arcs there because that kind of sounds sort of fun and it, it is an interesting world that could be kind of cool to explore some more but Promise Neverland, I, I think, is, is a really great start to a new era of shonen where we are seeing some kind of more intense and complex stories. I think that's the same with Attack on Titan, too. And I think in Promise Neverland, we're kind of seeing these undertones of vegetarianism and veganism and stuff with kind of ethical farming and things like Ooh. that um which is which is interesting and it's cool to see that shonen can still have the same energy and fun lovable heroes that we have but it also kind of has some complexity and it has some thought and these characters really have to think around these situations to achieve something and that's what i think what makes season one so fun and what sounds like some of those later arcs too kind of continue to have are those like plans on plans and plans versus plans which is you know cool we like that in death note too plans Mm -hmm. on plans on plans on plans totally baseless take but i think you and i would agree that they had a solid idea of what to start but as you said once it got on the spotlight they just kind of ran with it and throughout it does have the consistent themes that you mentioned, but it doesn't deliver in essentially the same, like the, the, the tightness of the story in the first season was so apparent from every page or every scene in the, in the anime. And I wish it could have been more of that throughout. I mean, I'm not going to tell him I can't write a manga. I'm not going to tell him what to do, but I wish it could have been more of that. Yeah. And again, I think it's really just the idea that it, had to keep going it wasn't a a concise story it just got there was this bigger world that maybe wasn't thought about it it just was okay i do want these kids to get out of this demon farm but then once it's outside of the farm it's like oh no what what do they do when they're outside do they just find i don't know it it just it, it it felt like they didn't know what to do once they're outside and kind of made it up as they went is is what it sounds like but again you know this is just us coming at it as (laughs) weebs 
what do we want the impact of Promise Neverland to be on Shonen? Well, I think for one, I think I want more heroes like Emma. I think it's awesome to have um, a, a young would, girl protagonist. I would take 50 Emmas over any Aaron Yeager any day. If you disagree, at me on Twitter. I'm going to stand by that claim. <laughs> and I, I also, too, love seeing kind of these um, brain battles. We've seen it in Death Note, and we're getting it here in Promise Neverland. I, I love to see more of that in Shonen. And also, too, I, I think the art style is really great. We didn't talk about that a ton. Oh, I want to talk about it. Yeah, I think I would love to see some more of the art style. I follow the artist Demizu Posca, Posca Demizu. I don't remember the order of her name. Um, but she is really awesome. We talked about that sort of Halloween style in Soul Eater, and she has a similar sort of Halloween-y vibe in a lot of her art, a lot of her illustrations. It might not come through so much in Promised Neverland, but I think her design of the monsters is so cool and the way she uses scenery is really cool and the way she draws character faces i touched on this in the beginning the character faces are really really interesting because it does kind of have a a subtlety to what they're expressing like norman especially smiles there's this panel it, it ends a chapter in the first part of the manga where norman is smiling but you just like can't tell exactly what he's feeling. It's not pure joy. It's like he has this sinister little plan going on in the background, and it leaves it up for interpretation just because she's so skilled at putting the pen on the page. We haven't talked a ton about the idea of world building, I guess, in, in a lot of our episodes, and I think that you know is, is another sort of bonus pillar of, of shonen, if you will, and this is one where it doesn't fully deliver on it, and I think that's where it gets lost, is it does set up this cool world, but then once it tries to expand on that world, it just doesn't go in a direction, I think, that is as as cool as it could have been. Yeah, I almost don't want them to try to build on that world if they don't know what's going to happen. Like, we have a full spectrum of world building in Shonen, as we'll talk about with other shows, where One Piece is on one end, has a very detailed, complex world. And then you have stories that just take place in Japan. My Hero has some cool themes, but it is fundamentally just in like an alternate Japan. And you can have anywhere in between or further or whatever. And I think if you don't know exactly what you're going to do with your world, and you just have a really, really cool story, just put it in what you know. Like the orphanage could it maybe, it could have been just demons in Japan or something. And it just ends with them getting out and then it's just up to you to determine what happens. Like, I don't think we needed this full world if they didn't know where they were going to go with it. And what's honestly so cool about it, too, is in this first season, we don't see the demons at all. and we But we know they're out there, and we know they're scary demons, but we don't have to see them to know that they're out there, and they're big, and they're bad, and they're ugly. But then it, it gets to that point, and I think that's, again, the biggest downfall of this show is it kind of... It, it keeps going, and it kind of would have been cool for just to be the kids escape, and, you know, that's, that's kind of all there is to it. Or, I don't know, or if there was just some more thought, I don't, I don't want to sound too too down on Promise Neverland, because I do really love what it did in Season 1. Absolutely, and from a meta perspective, I think it, it opened a lot of doors for Shonen. Um, if, you're a, if you're a follower of Shonen Jump, you know it's in a period of transition. That magazine in particular, I mean all of Shonen in a way, but that magazine in particular where series are ending and there's just a lot of open ground for new series to come in and new stories to just start popping up and telling new cool things in this sort of format. And I think Promise Neverland opened a lot of good possibilities with that, one being the writer and illustrator combo. I think this is the first story we've talked about where the writer does the writing and then the illustrator does the illustrating. And it allows them, one, to get a well-deserved, hopefully more personal time. Mangaka or manga authors have a crazy schedule. If you want to be blown away, just look up any YouTube video about it. And so hopefully, one, they get a little more time to themselves. But two... This opens up some really cool plot development and collaboration that we don't see. Um, in researching this episode, there were times when the author Shidai and the illustrator Demizu um, like ad-libbed or freestyled something, and the other really liked it. And that just wouldn't have happened otherwise. 
And I think I would love to see more combos going forward for Shonen Jump in particular for these reasons. I think it's so fascinating that it doesn't work that way in in Shonen Jump because I'm a huge comic book fan too. Mm -hmm. And in comic books, I will sometimes buy a story just based on the artist or based on the author. Mm -hmm. There's a whole dynamic where it's cool to kind of see these team-ups and dynamics within just the authors and artists themselves. So it is so cool to see that in Promised Neverland, and it would be so cool to get that in future shonen. Like, what if we had the Death Note author and, like, the Bleach illustrator pair up or something like that? It'd be crazy. Yeah, that would be so, so cool. And sometimes, I don't know, it, you pick a show based, based on the um, animation studio or based on the author, but it, it would be so cool to see more collabs and dynamics like that um, happen throughout Shonen. Totally. And then I don't know if this is a hot take, but the non-battle Shonen would be a really interesting thing to explore in the coming years. Not obviously, obviously, on Bravery Punch. I want to see people punching and fighting and doing things, uh, but more intellectual things would be cool more non-combat would be really interesting but still powering up and improving and working together and i want to bring up just before we forget this i want to bring up this one quote from the editor because even without the flashy fights at least until the goldie pond arc the editor says quote i feel it's a straightforward kind of manga in which the main characters overcome challenges with hard work and the help of their friends unquote and that is really what Shonen's all about. And if we can see more of that without necessarily punching each other, that'd be really cool. So I think Promise Neverland's first arc, much like a smart child's brain, it left a really great taste in my mouth. But as it went on, it really kind of lost its flavor. And its final punch was forgettable and left us wanting more. I'm Doki Doki Duffy. And I'm Kunai Kenny. Thanks for listening. Be sure to like, follow, and subscribe. 